CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Hello and welcome to the Georgia Today podcast from GPB News. Today is Monday, June 5th. I'm Orlando Montoya. On today's episode, hundreds of people line up to speak as the Atlanta City Council prepares to vote on the proposed police training facility. Fulton County launches a new mobile mental health unit. And oyster harvesting season officially ends in Georgia. We'll tell you whether you can expect more oysters in restaurants across the region. These stories and more are coming up on this edition of Georgia Today. The Atlanta City Council is expected to vote today on a plan to approve $31 million for a police training center. GPB's Peter Biello is at the meeting. More than 350 people signed up before the meeting to speak. Some spoke in favor of the project, citing the need for adequate training facilities and criticizing opponents of the project as privileged environmentalists and out-of-towners. Opponents say the training center is an expensive perpetuation of racist policing. During the meeting in the chamber, audience members shouted complaints about the process of signing up for public comment, prompting counselors to amend the agenda to give more people a chance to speak. The vote is expected to take place after public comments conclude. For GPB News, I'm Peter Biello in Atlanta City Hall. The last time the council met on the issue in May, it generated seven hours of public comments. City officials closed City Hall to regular business today out of concerns for security. Wellstar Health System officials came under fire today for a nearly $800 million partnership with Augusta University Health System after closing two Atlanta-area hospitals last year. Members of the State Senate's Health and Human Services Committee questioned company executives about their decisions to close Atlanta Medical Center and a smaller hospital in East Point while spending money elsewhere. Wellstar officials said the closures were unavoidable. Fulton County launched its new mobile mental health unit last week. GPB's Amanda Andrews explains it's designed to make mental health resources more accessible. The mobile mental health unit is a bus featuring three rooms where the public can show up and meet privately with a licensed therapist for a mental health screening. Fulton County Behavioral Health Director Latrina Foster says she hopes to make more people comfortable seeking care. We have an excellent caption, right? Are you okay? We know a lot of our community members right now are not okay. So we ask the question, are you okay? But then we also let you know at the same time, help is here, literally right here in this mobile unit. The mobile mental health unit will rotate visits to public locations around Fulton County throughout each month. It was paid for with a nearly $4 million grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. For GPB News, I'm Amanda Andrews. About 19,000 older Georgians could lose food assistance benefits under the bipartisan debt ceiling agreement signed into law over the weekend. The deal increases the age limit for those required to work to receive the benefits from 49 to 54 years old. Analysts with the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, including Danny Canso, reacted to the agreement today. That's going to push a much greater burden uh, of need onto our local communities and onto our state. And so now there is a clear role for the state to fill the gap. He says the state should use part of an expected multi-billion dollar budget surplus to increase funding to food assistance programs. 
The operator of a chemical plant is reimbursing a Georgia fire department for damaged equipment and overtime pay accrued battling a raging fire at the facility in April. Glynn County Commissioners last week accepted a check for around $37,000 from Panova, which produces turpentine resins used in glues and other adhesives in the port city of Brunswick. Fire broke out at the plant on April 15th, sending plumes of thick smoke into the sky and prompting officials to issue a shelter-in-place order for people living within a mile of the blaze. Georgia's oyster harvesting season officially ended last week. GPB's Benjamin Payne has more on what that means for consumers. If you're heading out for seafood anytime soon, don't expect to see fresh and raw Georgia oysters on the menu. That's because the state routinely shuts down harvesting over the summer months, as warmer water breeds harmful bacteria. Charlie Phillips owns Sapelo Sea Farms near coastal Georgia's Sapelo Island. He says this past season's catch was as productive, but that pollution across the region has gotten worse since they began plucking oysters in the late 90s. As a culture, we are really bad about out of sight, out of mind, not worrying about what really goes on downstream. Once you put plastic in the waters, even the microplastics, it stays in there a long time and it keeps accumulating. The Department of Natural Resources says oyster harvesting can't resume until October 1st, 30 minutes before sunrise to be precise. For GPB News, I'm Benjamin Payne. In the 1960s and 1970s, the far-right anti-communist John Birch Society both challenged the mainstream Republican Party and presaged its future. That's according to my next guest, historian and George Washington University political management professor Matthew Dalek, author of a new book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. He's here to talk about the deep Georgia connections to the influential society. But first, we need to talk about what it was. Mr. Dalek, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. What's your best short description of the John Birch Society? Well, it was a group of about 60 to 100,000 Americans uh, who wanted to fight what they saw as a communist threat, a communist conspiracy inside their communities. Uh, and uh, they did all sorts of activities. There were several passages in the book where you sort of summed up the Birchers and how they differed from mainstream Republicans in a few short words, and they were explicit racism, anti-international, anti-establishment, conspiracy theories, violent and apocalyptic. Mm. Uh, Do you see those themes as sort of the wall between mainstream and extremism in the conservative movement? Yeah, great question. Uh, I I do see it. I I don't know if I would describe it as a wall. I mean, I think the far right was part of the conservative coalition at times, especially uh, during election campaigns. Conservative politicians, uh, they wanted uh, the Birchers and their successors, they wanted their money, their votes, and they wanted the energy, but they did not want the taint. Let's get to the Georgia connections because there are many, starting with John Birch himself. Who was he and how did he get a movement named after him? Yes. How does one get a movement named after them? That's a, that's a great uh, a puzzle. So uh, he was an evangelist turned warrior. He became an intelligence officer for the U.S. Army, and he was killed shortly after World War II by a Chinese communist forces. And Robert Welch, the the founder of the Birch Society, 
discovered in, in the mid-1950s and early 1950s that John Birch not only had been killed, but as he argued in his short biography of Birch, that Birch's death had been covered up by American government officials uh, who were part of this alleged communist conspiracy. And so the real crime was not just the, the murder of John Birch, but it was the U.S. government's efforts to cover up the crime as part of this communist plot. And so Birch became really the first victim of World War III, as many Birch leaders saw it and, and named it after this martyr. And he was from Georgia, correct? Macon, Georgia. After Welch, the society's founder, the organization's second national chairman was Georgia Congressman Larry McDonald, a conservative Democrat who represented a northwest Georgia district for eight years, ending with his death in 1983. What's his history in the society, and how does he take us into the 1980s? Well, McDonald's a fascinating uh, character uh, and uh, actually represented part of the same district that Marjorie Taylor Greene represents. McDonald was a, a leader of the Birchers. He was an ultra-conservative Southern Democrat. He was very pro-gun. He owned many, many guns, uh, which especially at the time was seen as, as pretty far right. And he opposed Tip O'Neill, the, the speaker for speaker, and was you know, pushed out by the Democrats, basically kicked off his committees. And what I think is interesting about him in part in his career is that he really was the fringe of the fringe. He was seen as the most extreme member of Congress in the 1970s and, and early and mid-1980s. Yet, of course, today, McDonald's type is quite powerful. I found an archived news article that said segregationist Georgia Governor Lester Maddox, 10 years out of office in 1983, wanted a national holiday not for the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as was becoming law at the time, but for McDonald. Uh, was Maddox a bircher? Maddox, I do not think, was a member of the Birch Society, as far as I can tell. But around 1970, the early 1970s, he starts to speak at a lot of their conventions or uh, their, their God and country rallies. He's sort of the marquee speaker. And Maddox would get up on stage and tell the Birch Society that civil rights, which again, by the early 1970s, had basically become a more settled issue— and Maddox would say that civil rights was a communist plot. It was a communist conspiracy to take away Americans' rights. And so, again, I don't think he was a card-carrying member of the Birch Society, but he became a de facto leader of the society. The society fell into decline in the 1980s when other organizations like Moral Majority and the Christian Coalition took up its mantle. Can you take us from there to another former Georgia congressman, former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Gingrich, in some respects, I think, comes out of the Birch tradition, although not entirely. I think one of Gingrich's insights that the Birchers also proposed was this idea of politics as war. Liberals, the Democrats, were not just ideological opponents, but really were enemies who were from within the greatest threat to the character of the United States and to the, to the ideas that made America great. So he was really able to wield this apocalyptic, tear it all down, culture war approach 
And there are some echoes. But again, you don't want to overdo it because in other respects, Gingrich, I do not think, you know, kind of operated in the birch mold. Yeah, I do want to ask you if it's fair to lump in some of these more current figures, uh, Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, even Newt Gingrich, uh, with the Birch Society when we are so far removed from its heyday? Well, um, you know, you never want to simply say, ah, that person's a Bircher, you know, but, but I do think that as I argue in the book, it is important to look at how Birch ideas had an afterlife and became important to their successors. People, of course, can disagree. But what I argue in the book is that the Birchers were an important group that helped to establish this alternative political tradition on the far right. And that some of these current figures that you mentioned, that they picked up on these ideas. And I do think that these ideas have made a comeback. And so whether we're talking about banning sex education in the schools or banning books or the more, what I would argue, more explicit forms of racism, the conspiracy theories. You know, Birchers propagated all these things, and I think that these are also central elements of the modern Trump-led MAGA movement. And so, again, you don't want to overdo the parallels, but the ideas, I think, did have an afterlife. And we've seen a, a remarkable resurgence of these ideas atop at least much of the Republican Party today. Matthew Dalek is author of the new book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. Thank you for coming to the program. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for today's edition of Georgia Today. If you'd like to learn more about these stories, visit gpb.org news. We have all kinds of updates there. And if you haven't yet hit subscribe to this podcast, we'd love for you to do that so you stay current in your feed with us. And if you have feedback, send that to us as well. We'd love to hear from you at georgiatoday at gpb.org. I'm Orlando Montoya. Glad to be here today, and we'll see you tomorrow.